to overgeneralize, there's a sort of engineering mindset about resilience that is about material resilience. How well do we bounce back? How flood resistant is this material? And then ecological resilience is about absorbing shock. So how strong is your wetland and how can you handle the increase in floods, right? But the version that's really most appropriate when you're working with vulnerable communities is how do we build adaptive capacity to continue to strengthen and not just, as you say, like maintain the status quo, but actually build strength, build on the existing assets of a place and allow people to be a part of positive change instead of making decisions on their behalf. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox. And today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment. And if you want to learn more about Island Press or the Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is resiliency planning, equity, and community-driven design. Our guest is Barbara Brown-Wilson, Assistant Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at the University of Virginia and co-founder of Design Futures. She is a founding member of the Equity Collective and the author of a new book from Island Press, Resilience for All, Striving for Equity Through Community-Driven Design. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Barbara, let's just dive right in. I think that your the title of your book implies that maybe resiliency planning, which is kind of all the hot rage topic right now, may not be done in a way that adequately considers the needs of, of all communities, particularly socioeconomically vulnerable communities. So is that part of your book? And could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think, of course, with any approach to planning and design, it's done in a lot of different ways. But the narrative around resilience planning is often focused around urgency, right? We have an urgent need to change the way that we design and build and our land use patterns so that we can be more resilient to future uh, climate extreme events and other sort of natural disasters that we see increasing over time. But what happens in many communities is these are lower income communities of color that are already socioeconomically vulnerable and also typically in the ecologically vulnerable parts of the city because of the sort of inequities that we perpetuate in our land use historically. And when you don't also think about what's important, not just urgent, but important in terms of whose voices are being heard, whose culture is being valued, you lose a lot. And you often don't bring your community along with you in the decisions you're making from a a sort of top-down perspective. So this book just tells the stories of communities and vulnerable communities that have really done a great job of leading their own processes and starting a conversation that informs how you might think about resilience and the resilience of, you know, strength of public infrastructure, but also taking the time to build capacity for their own residents to stay and to thrive. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, resilience when we think about, when people talk about building resilient communities, there's a conversation about hardening and protecting what currently exists and or how do we recover 
to the current state after some kind of major interruption. And it feels like that's freezing the status quo in some way, right? And the places that are more vulnerable, the communities that have less political sway will be left out of that conversation. But also, shouldn't we be thinking in a way that is doing resiliency planning and resiliency efforts in a way that's actually lifting up and building these communities right before any kind of catastrophic event occurs? Exactly. To overgeneralize, there's a sort of engineering mindset about resilience that is about material resilience. How well do we bounce back? How flood resistant is this material? And then ecological resilience is about absorbing shock. So how strong is your wetland and how can you handle the increase in floods, right? But the version that's really most appropriate when you're working with vulnerable communities is how do we build adaptive capacity to continue to strengthen and not just as you say, like maintain the status quo, but actually build strength, build on the existing assets of a place and allow people to be a part of positive change instead of making decisions on their behalf. Excellent. So a big focus of your book is the, you talk about, I believe you look at four different communities and you talk about community-driven design. So could you explain for our audience what how you would define community-driven design and how that may differ from the typical public engagement processes? Definitely. So very traditional design processes have been client-driven, and often this is a patron model. So you have, again, overgeneralizing, but a sort of rich white male client making a lot of decisions, even in public infrastructure projects. And this means that this client, this patron decides who you talk to, how you define the problem, who has a say in not only what is asked, but what the answers are to that question and how that plays out in practice. And there's a a lot of literature that I try to bring out that I think is really illuminating about white spatial imaginaries and sort of perpetuating spaces in a particular cultural image and the violence that that does to communities that actually that doesn't align with the way they think about space. It doesn't align with the values that they have for how they interact with their neighbor, with their street, with their community. And these are often communities that have already been subject to the violence of of sort of traditional power dynamics. And so coming into a community that's gone through a traumatic sort of often many different versions of of trauma through segregation, through redlining, through all of all of the injustices that are not even just the environmental injustices that that are typically more unique to whatever place we're in. And asking them to show up at your town hall meeting and put their sticky dot on their favorite of the three drawings before them is definitely not enough. And there needs to be all sorts of structures in place that not only make people feel like they have the capacity to come to the table and decide what the questions are, how you ask them and how you answer them, but actually decide what the table looks like, right? And so community-driven design is not only a sort of public interest design, which is the sort of broader framework trying to break away from a patron model and think much more about 
the sort of civil rights alignments that design might have if it's really going often like medicine and, and public health, if it's really going to have a public purpose, what makes that work different? But community-driven design is sort of taking that a step further to not make, not only make design accessible to lower-income communities that often just are underserved because they can't afford or have not been invited to the table, but to create a scenario in which these communities can be designing the table can be leading the entire process and figuring out how to build capacity. So really much less focused on a product often and more focused on building capacity for people to stay in place and have the life that they want and less focused on technical skill and knowledge and and a lot more focused on local knowledge and how you fuse decentering design and making the community the the sort of center of the decision making process and design just supporting those ends. Yeah, and it's a huge leap for the planning field, right? I mean, most of the planning field is probably at level 1. My guess is that from what I see there's a what I think one of your former colleagues used to call participating the public. Decisions are already kind of made, the parameters are so tight you want to have community involvement because you're supposed to have community involvement. It's a box you need to check. You bring people in and there's marginal input in any kind of decision making. Then you go to a level where there's kind of authentic public participation where people can actually influence the decision making. And decision makers are interested in communicating with the public in order to get better decisions, better outcomes. You're talking about a third level, right? Which is a design process that's actually not just participating the public or engaging the public, but empowering the public. And I think that's pretty rare. So maybe you could walk us through an example in your book of where that's happened and how that looks and why that's such a superior model to a public engagement. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. It is rare, but I think seeing how it looks can help my colleagues in planning and elsewhere understand that it's actually giving your project more strength to have a platform in which local knowledge is underlying the entire process rather than than less. So I love all of the cases in the book, but I'll use Detroit because it is a lesser told story than some of the others. The Denby neighborhood in Detroit is in Northeast Detroit and is a high vacancy community where they've they've really suffered from this sort of foreclosure crisis and the sort of segregation that has marked Detroit for a very long time has created a situation in Denby where the only anchor institutions are really the schools, the public schools there. At the same time, Den, some community leaders in Denby have been a part of a citywide process. So Detroit went through a bankruptcy and started really thinking about a 50-year framework, strategic framework for what could be and was asking questions about what do we, what they want the city to look like in 50 years and realized that a this the framework had to be developed in a way that was really bottom up uh, from people across the city which is how they engaged some Denby leadership but they also realized that when they asked young people what they wanted for the city in 50 years many Detroit residents said I want to live somewhere else which is not what you want for your city right and so they started trying to think through all right, we've got this really, what feels like a really solid platform that we're building to make Detroit the strong city we want it to be. But we need young people to know about that, to feel a part of it, and to really want to stay and contribute. So 
really amazing community community leader living in the Denby neighborhood who was a part of this process, Sandra Turner Handy, worked with a group they call Impact Detroit, which is this sort of table of community leaders that have been helping implement the strategic framework called Detroit Future City, for those of you Googling things. And I wanted to show what this looked like on the ground, this sort of future visioning and engage young people. So Sandra went to the local public school, Denby High School, and worked with a young teacher there to implement a capstone experience in your senior year that would really transform the curriculum and allow for the students to be learning about Detroit Future Cities framework and doing place-based work that not only got them more excited to be at school, but also contributing in really meaningful ways to their community. So there's a lot of amazing things about this project, but the sort of easily digestible version in terms of land use is that the students quickly identified two issues that mattered to them a lot and they wanted to take action on. And one was crime. The Denby neighborhood has a very high crime rates. And I think it it made a lot of the children walking to school feel unsafe. And the other was sort of related. There was this play field. So a city-owned play field next to the high school that would have been a wonderful amenity for not only the high school, but also the surrounding community, but had been really undernourished by the city. So the students helped the adults create the Denby Neighborhood Alliance. And this is a, a set of neighborhood groups that are sort of at the block level that got together to have a voice for the Denby neighborhood. And then together, the adults and this group of students did several amazing things, but they started working on what that play field should look like and uh, adopted it formally by the city. So there was support from the city to have this community-driven process. And then over really the course of, I think, two years, worked through what that redesign of the playfield should look like. One of my favorite examples of the power of local knowledge is this is a community where gang violence is an issue, but the Skinner playfield was supposed to be a sort of, you know, a safe place. And the basketball courts, everyone knew were going to be a really big deal because there's a lot of really cool kind of handmade basketball hoops around the streets. So the architect kept moving the basketball courts to the side of the playfield design because it was like an efficient use of the corner, right? And the youth kept moving it back to the center in like this diagonal. And over and over again, this happened. And finally, this wonderful landscape architect, Charles Cross, that worked on the project was like, okay, what's going on? You know, this is silly, right? This is not a good use of the space. And they said, we know that this is technically a, a sort of neutral zone for the gangs, but there's still the opportunity we don't feel as safe from drive-bys and other things on the street. And so if you want this basketball court to be used as much as it could be, you need it to be in the center of the space. So when you look at the Skinner playfield design, and today it's it's implemented and it's beautiful, it is thoroughly used, but it is not the efficient use of that corner <laughs> that a designer alone would have done. So in that case, they worked with the Denby Neighborhood Alliance to map out the safest routes to all of the public schools in the Denby neighborhood. They then had a blitz of about 10,000 volunteers to not only help build out the play field, but also uh, board up vacant properties and remove vines and things from some properties, fix up the properties of students that needed um, some basic repairs, do murals in the community. You know, so in a week, 
there was this radical transformation. They planted uh, planter boxes with hopeful sort of uh, messages at every corner, 125 planter boxes, and cleaned up, I think, 300 blocks of, of the Denby neighborhood and put these little feet so that you could walk along a safe route as a student. And although you can't say this is causal, after the implementation of, of this kind of radical set of safer routes, less vines, less vacant units, and the Skinner Playfield, you see a rise in attendant rates, a rise in graduation rates from Denby High School. You see a, a dramatic drop in crime. So something really good is happening in the Denby neighborhood, and it feels like this community-driven design process had a major role to play. And part of that is modeling good design. And part of it's just like letting people do their own community policing because they understand the way the neighborhood should work and getting out of the way sometimes to let communities be strong together. So, so this is a fairly radical reimagining of design whether it be planners or architects, landscape architects, a kind of a radical reimagining of the design profession, right? I mean, it's it's moving the designer or architect from kind of the expert visionary role to the kind of more facilitator, servant to the public role. And that's a huge shift in the way that all those professions work. So how would you envision that Moving forward, how do we make things like the Denby project more universal and not the the rare project? Well, there's two really, I think, equally important answers to that question. The first is that not every project should be driven by a community, right? There are times where I go to a central public library space that's been designed with a sort of typical amount of community feedback, and I'm inspired by things I don't know how to create, right? Like there are moments when really like the creative genius of good design is so valuable and so inspiring and should be at the forefront of the decision-making process. And I am seeing, luckily, that a lot of the really wonderful designers that I have the opportunity to work with and teach and and learn from can do both, right? So ideally, we will work to a, a, a realm in which you can do both, but there are still moments where that technical skill is so wonderful to have in the forefront. But I cover eight projects in the book because I do think it's important to know that this is actually not unusual. It is rare that it gets the space it needs and the support it needs to work well. But Sandra, who I mentioned earlier, the real sort of hero of this project in Detroit, she hates the word empower. And it's taught me a lot because she's like, we already have power. You just have to get out of the way (laughs) so that we can deploy that power. And I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations happening in both design and planning, at least education, you know, spheres, but I think also in practice about decolonizing design. If we think about the design and planning professions as something that used to uphold a status quo that doesn't always benefit lower income families, right? It's not crafted. The funding mechanisms are not crafted so that you can be a viable practice and also really have extremely low income clients who can't afford to pay, right? And so What's exciting, I think, is that those funding mechanisms are changing and allowing for a new way of working 
to have both that technical knowledge of good design and then also the, I think, incredibly critical knowledge of local resident leadership, right? But it does create the need for new ways to value public assets, to value, like we have to pay residents for their time to be a member of the design team, right? We can't just say, come volunteer on your Saturday because that's not fair. All of the middle-class people on the team are getting paid for their time as a salaried worker on this project. And yet often the traditional way is, well, everybody was too busy, so they didn't show up. You didn't develop trust. You didn't ask them what they wanted. You asked them to come and place a sticky dot on their Saturday afternoon without really resourcing them and allowing them to be a part of the group that decides not only when the meeting is going to be held, but how the agenda is going to be set. So it does, it does require some new skills. Where are the funding sources to pay people to do that? I think that those are pretty few and far between. They're becoming less so. I think the foundation world plays a really important role. They've taught me a lot, actually, at the Cerdna Foundation. There's a group of funders, and full disclosure, they actually funded some of the research to the Lower Manhattan Cultural Center's work with Paths to Pier 42 on the Lower East Side was funded to do some research that that helped me really think through their case study. But the Cerdna Foundation has a community-driven or community-engaged design funding source now that's, I think, it was the first in the country to really explicitly say, okay, design there's a different way to do this and we will incent you to do this good work in a way that allows you to give the platform and the voice and the time that is required to really build partnerships of mutual respect. And that has, I think, helped create a wave. So the Kresge Foundation's doing this work very well. A lot of local foundations are understanding through these these national foundations how this works. And then what's wonderful is that the cities are changing their design procurement processes. And it's becoming easier even here at the university. It's becoming easier to pay my community partners for their time on the project where it used to be something that wasn't thought of as a viable research cost. So I think the Obama administration did a great job of valuing place-based research and and community-engaged processes. So the EPA has some really amazing tools that they've created for sort of citizen science. And we, we saw a rise in the sort of capacity nationally, thinking through what this looks like when you do this work hand in hand with community members. But the foundations have really taken on that charge and I think are doing some very inspiring work, not only in this in the upfront funding, but also now what they're calling equitable evaluation. So thinking about who asks the questions and who owns the data in terms of what success looks like. So they're really they're really leading leading us all in some really important ways. So if I'm a community member or a planner in a small community and I want to change our approach to engaging the public around planning processes, besides buying your book, which is Resilience for All, which is available at, at Island Press, where do you have any resources or any place you would direct people who, who want to learn how to bring this approach or this type of thinking to their community? Absolutely. So the National Endowment for the Arts has a website with a lot of really amazing case studies. They've done some incredible work documenting all the things that they've funded and really inspiring work and and, and very well documented. So it's a great online resource. The Association for Community Design has annual conference every year that's in Baltimore in June, where you can learn from the practitioners uh, doing this work across the country. 
And then the Sordna Foundation has a website that is, I think, communityengagedesign.org that captures all of the things being written about this work across the country and including Next City, which is a is a really wonderful weekly news source that captures this, among other things, as the sort of wonderful work happening every week and the sort of thought leadership around these issues across the country. Barbara, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I, I think we need to have you come back to, to chat about a few other topics. The book is Resilience for All, and it's available at Island Press. Barbara, thank you so much for the book. I have not read the entire book yet, but it's a great book. I highly recommend it for folks. And thank you for the important work that you're doing. And thanks for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.